to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we've talked about mental health a number of times on Stuff Mom Never Told You. And we have received requests from a lot of listeners to talk about what we're going to talk about today which is borderline personality disorder. And Caroline, I want to bounce the ball to you first because you are the one who, you know, in addition to us getting these listener requests, you also were interested in researching and talking about this. Was there something in particular that sparked your desire to learn more about it? Yeah, because when I have heard about borderline personality disorder, traditionally it's been, and in relation to women, traditionally it has been uh, along the lines of that girl is crazy, um, or I dated this crazy girl, or my friend dated this crazy girl, and, you know, I think she was like borderline or something. And so... People being very flip about it the way that they people in general are flip about so many mental health conditions. Um, you know, we talked about that very same issue in our in our episode on obsessive compulsive disorder that people are, are very uh, not eager, but very ready to just throw out uh, a mental health term. To describe something not serious, when in reality you're mislabeling a set of behaviors. Yeah, and also misgendering it in a way. Because like you said, a lot of times when it is applied more sarcastically, it's usually exclusively describing women. And even if we look at pop culture and depictions of borderline personality disorder, all of the characters we rounded up are women as well. So, for instance, Girl Interrupted, starring Winona Ryder and Angelina Jolie. Uh, Winona Ryder's character is supposed to have BPD, but she kind of shows little evidence of it in the movie. Yeah, it's almost like Angelina Jolie's character shows a little bit more of that traditional uh, BPD behavior. Um, there's also Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. And before anyone gets upset, she is definitely a caricature of... Someone with BPD. Um, and, and that's, that's another issue too. So not only do you have the gendering of borderline personality disorder in pop culture and in the media, but you do tend to see it as a caricature, not as something real that someone is struggling with. Um, psychiatrist David M. Allen, who is a professor at the University of Tennessee, also pointed out that Anne Hathaway in the movie Rachel Getting Married uh, portrays someone with borderline personality disorder, but they don't actually delve deep into the relationship between her and her mother, which uh, in real life, IRL, could have triggered uh, BPD in someone. And a movie that I actually had not heard of before, but I'm now curious to see partially because I love this actress, uh, Jessica Lange in the movie Francis, um, is also, as Dr. Allen points out, someone who is meant to portray borderline personality disorder because of the way that she manipulates her psychiatrist by exploiting his insecurities. And, and that is something that you see with borderline, where um, people do tend to be master manipulators because they read people really, really, really well. 
Yeah, and also he points out that the tipping point in this character's life, well, actually it was a character based on a, a woman who actually existed, an actress named Frances. Um, but she also has this controlling, hostile mother who tried to live vicariously through her. And so we will talk about more about these family connections. Does um, this get a little mommy dearest? Yeah, that was another one that commenters were like, um, I have another one <laughs> suggestion. Yeah. Um, he also was really big on the movie 13, which starred Evan Rachel Wood and Nikki Reed. He says that it should be subtitled How to Turn Your Teenager into a Borderline Without Ever Being Abusive. Yeah, I was trying to remember watching that. It's been so long since I've seen 13, and I certainly was not aware as I was watching that 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 might have been something going on with these characters. Well, right. And I I think that uh, when we look at kids, uh, teens, young people who are developing BPD, a lot of the times they're just portrayed as like bad kids, bad seeds, wild. Yeah, they're just wild and out of control. And, you know, maybe they should just be shipped off to boarding school or, you know, you're just going to wind up in prison. But there are very real things that are beginning to manifest around that age. Because if borderline personality disorder and its accompanying symptoms aren't caught early on, and technically you're not supposed to diagnose a child with BPD, um, you can almost just watch the condition develop as kids get older. Well, speaking of watching the condition develop, let's talk about what this is. So according to the National Institutes of Health, Borderline personality disorder is defined as a serious mental illness marked by unstable moods, behaviors, and relationships, which does sound like a very umbrella type of term, i got to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And those unstable moods can be triggered by, honestly, really what we would consider maybe mundane events or minor separations, um, because people with BPD are terrified of abandonment, and they tend to lack a strong or stable sense of self-identity. And then, um, as we mentioned, talking about Jessica Lang portraying Francis, people with borderline personality tend to be hyper adept at reading people. And this was something explored more in a November 2006 study in the journal Emotion, um, which found that, quote, an enhanced ability to recognize expressions of happiness, sadness, anger and fear might contribute to the unstable relationships and intense emotions characteristic of the disorder. So essentially, these people are able to read other people and then sort of shapeshift in a way based on that. But it's almost it's almost such a burden because they are so adept at picking up on she's really happy or she's really upset or she's really angry. They tend to experience this emotional roller coaster. And so basically in this study, when they were shown faces, they were able to pick up on an emotion, whether it was anger or whether it was happiness, so much earlier in the emotions expression on the face than people without BPD. So like I might be having just like a flicker of anger across my face, but somebody with BPD would pick up on that and imagine that I'm just enraged or so upset with them. Um, and it's the same thing with happiness, which leads to a lot of very turbulent emotional connections. Because if if I'm looking at you and I'm just like vaguely happy or, you know, not looking upset, uh, you might think like, oh, she she really likes me or, you know, they tend to develop these these really strong emotional connections and have turbulent romantic relationships because 
there's almost too much of a reading into when it comes to emotions, facial expressions, body language. Oh, so it's not it's not even just that they're correct in assessing someone's emotions, but they tend to blow it out of proportion. Yeah. Okay. And on top of these kinds of factors, there are also high rates of comorbid conditions like anxiety, which is the most common. Um, BPD and anxiety tend to go pretty hand in hand, as well as things like depression, substance abuse, and eating disorders, as well as self-harm and suicide. And that self-harm and and self-cutting behavior was something that came up in a lot of the research that we read, especially when it came to women with borderline personality disorder. Yeah, and other common comorbid conditions include post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar 2 disorders, and ADHD. And the whole PTSD thing is interesting because there is a large group of psychiatrists uh, and people in the mental health community who think that borderline personality disorder is just a type of PTSD. And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the impulsiveness that comes along with BPD a lot of times can lead to risky behavior, things like spending sprees, unsafe sex, substance abuse, which we mentioned, uh, reckless driving and even binge eating. And this risky behavior means that a lot of BPD people are more likely to be victims of violence, including rape. And continuing with the behavioral symptoms, there tend to be lots of stormy relationships that swing on that pendulum from I hate you, don't leave me, um, intense and highly changeable moods fluctuating from confidence to despair, chronic feelings of emptiness or boredom, having inappropriate or intense anger or problems controlling anger. Like you said earlier, Caroline, there are these what we might consider to be mundane events that can send someone kind of over the edge. And then also stress-related paranoid thoughts or severe dissociative symptoms, such as feeling cut off from oneself, observing oneself outside of one's body, or just losing touch with reality entirely. And, and that, too, is where... We will, in a few minutes, get into why borderline is called borderline. Right. But yeah, in terms of that inappropriate or uh, ill-controlled anger, we see road rage come up a lot in terms of uh, things that are associated with BPD. But then people like Judith Herman, who we'll talk about in a little bit, also come back and say, you know, there are things that are associated with anger or masculinity that are okay. So it's almost like it's more okay for certain symptoms of BPD when it's a man showing them versus a woman. But mm. Well, and this list of symptoms too, or behavioral manifestations, sounds like it could be so many different things. And also there are a lot of things on this list that I experience from oh, yeah. time to time too. So you can see how borderline probably becomes so challenging if anything, just to get a diagnosis. Yeah, but it turns out that it's twice as common as schizophrenia in the population, uh, and about 2% of the general population has borderline personality disorder. And it is treatable to a degree. It it takes pretty intensive therapy. 
Um, but that means that therapists with traditional analytic training aren't incredibly effective. Uh, they might view BPD patients as manipulative and demanding of too much time. Uh, and BPD patients do tend to sabotage their therapy and might not trust their therapist. Nor is there any psychotherapeutic drug developed to specifically treat borderline personality disorder. So drugs might be prescribed, but at the same time, 70% of borderline patients drop out of traditional treatments. So as a result of the challenges to addressing, treating, and managing borderline personality disorder, 80% of people with it have suicidal behaviors with an estimated three attempts, and about 10% commit suicide. And because of that huge link to suicidality, and also how common it is compared to something like schizophrenia that we tend to hear about a lot more, that tends to get a lot more funding and research. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, healthcare providers and researchers have called for greater public awareness and attention to this. Yeah, and in terms of the research that's been done, uh, researchers say that both genetic and environmental factors are at play because studies have shown that it's inheritable and things like mood dysregulation and aggression could be related to low levels of serotonin. But other researchers have asked whether we inherit temperament and personality traits like impulsiveness and aggression, and then environmental factors like abuse, neglect, and instability in the home end up triggering the personality disorder. So it sounds like there's some... Correlation causation that has to be untangled mm-hmm. going on. Um, and it should be said that some people with borderline personality disorder come from stable homes, but deprivation and or instability in relationships are more likely to promote it. So going back to David M. Allen, whom we cited earlier, um, he says that it doesn't require abuse. It could be more about receiving conflicting messages as a kid. So the example that he paints is of parents who might see their parental role as the ultimate life goal. But deep down, they kind of hate being parents, resent it, might resent their children. So the parent then vacillates between hostile over-involvement and under-involvement. And so it creates this invalidating environment, which, honestly, Caroline, when I first read the phrase invalidating environment, that sounded very much like a helicopter parenting kind of term of like, oh, no, we must give children trophies for every little thing they do. But it's not it's not that, right? Right, yeah. Invalidating basically refers to a child experiencing cognitive dissonance, essentially getting two messages, maybe one spoken and one implied, uh, and not knowing what's real, not feeling safe, not feeling genuine love and affection. And so as that child gets older, she ends up turning around. David M. Allen uses the phrase a lot, like they're giving as good as they get in terms of BPD developing in a child. They turn around and invalidate everything the parent does, filling the role of the so-called spoiler. Basically, as she gets older, the child remains dependent on the parents to a degree, even as a, a young adult or an adult, allowing the parents to remain obsessed with her while at the same time belittling everything the parents try to do for her. And the parent, you know, can't do anything right in this situation. But the thing is... 
this is a learned behavior. You've grown up in this invalidating environment. You strike out by invalidating <laughs> the invalidating parent. And then you end up filling that same, quote, spoiler role in other relationships, not surprisingly, your romantic relationships. Yeah, and which also reminded me of uh, pickup artistry terminology, because this sounds a lot like familial negging, yeah. like drawing someone in by continually belittling them. And that becomes sort of the very uh, unhealthy glue that binds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um And it's interesting, the patterns that emerge that are pretty consistent. This is coming from the National Institutes of Health as well. People with BPD are significantly more likely to see their mother as distant or overprotective and their relationship with her full of conflict, while the father tends to be seen as less involved and more distant. And so a caregiver's emotional denial of a child's experiences becomes a huge predictor of BPD. And that's what it means to say an invalidating environment. It's the emotional denial of a child's experience. So is it we should all blame our parents, basically? (laughs) Basically. But But there have to be neurological factors going on as well that might um, sort of predicate this sort of reaction to uh, emotional insensitivity or emotional denial, I should say. I mean, yes, absolutely. And and I wish I knew more about it, especially in terms of the amygdala and serotonin. Um, but my my thinking, just being a total layperson podcaster, having read a bunch of stuff about BPD, would be like, um, well, what did their parents do? And what did their parents uh. do? Because stuff does get passed down. Emotional baggage and the way that we treat each other does get passed down. This is what frightens my womb, Caroline. <laughs> this is what does like set my uterus hysterical. This, yeah, just bouncing around like pong in there. Like, oh God! Oh God! Um, no, this is this is why, like, legit. This is why I say that everybody should go to therapy. Oh yeah, because there are things like I will get in fights with my boyfriend or whatever, and it brings up stuff that it's like, oh, I. uh I have literally never dealt with that. Yeah. It's it's amazing how often mom and dad are in the room, whether you invited them there or not. Seriously. I mean, that sounds creepy. And it is. It is. It is. Um, But this kind of research that we're talking about, this understanding of BPD is relatively new. And when we come back from a quick break, we're going to look at how we came to this point because it took a little while for the medical community to identify and begin to wrap their heads around what this really means. So the term borderline personality disorder uh, used to be sort of a, a wastebasket term. People actually called it a wastebasket term. How rude. uh, How rude, as Stephanie Tanner would say. Um, Because psychiatrists, psychologists, researchers were were sort of perplexed by uh, the set of behaviors that they were seeing that was very common. And so anyway, let's let's look into the history of the development of this diagnosis. In the 1930s, the term borderline personality is coined. And It's called borderline as a reference to being on the border between neurosis 
and psychosis. And analysts at this time thought that people with neuroses were treatable, but people with psychoses were not. And to clarify between neuroses and psychoses, because I needed to be clarified between neuroses and psychoses, uh, neuroses are what I have. (laughs) These are (laughs) mild mental illnesses not caused by organic disease involving symptoms of stress. So things like depression, anxiety, obsessive behavior, hypochondria, but not a radical loss of touch with reality. Whereas psychosis, or psychoses in the plural, um, this is a severe mental disorder in which thought and emotions are so impaired that you really lose touch with reality. Yeah, and so this this idea of what borderline personality disorder or what the borderline group of patients is, is not really an accurate description. But doctors just basically didn't know what to do with these people. Um, so why did they think that this is what borderline personality disorder or at the time just borderline patients were? It's because some people with BPD have brief psychotic episodes, so experts thought of it as just an atypical version of other existing conditions. And then it's in 1938 that we get American psychoanalyst Adolf Stern, who first describes the symptoms that now make up borderline personality disorder. He said that this, quote, borderline group of patients is extremely difficult to handle effectively by any psychotherapeutic method, writing that... These folks suffer from effective narcissistic malnutrition. In other words, their parents didn't give them that sense of security from being genuinely loved when they were growing up. And the common view in Stern's era was that BPD was a modified form of schizophrenia. So they would point to certain patients' tendencies to regress into what they called borderline schizophrenia amid unstructured situations. Well, so not too long after that, in the 1940s, we get a really interesting figure in Helen Deutsch. Uh, She left Europe amid World War II uh, and was a controversial figure. She still remains kind of a controversial figure, but she contributed a lot to our understanding or our early understanding of what BPD was. And so Helen Deutsch is a psychoanalyst. Uh, she was the first woman that Freud ever analyzed and ended up after that training under him to become the first woman to lead a psychoanalysis clinic in Vienna. And in 1944, she published The Psychology of Women, in which she said that femininity's three essential traits are narcissism, passivity, and masochism. And it's because of this idea that second waivers called her a traitor to her sex. And Helen Deutsch was like, no, I'm not. I, I Listen, I'm just trying to call it like I see it with Freud and psychoanalysis. And listen, I'm an outspoken advocate for legal abortion. And also, too, in Vienna, she worked to organize women workers and protested the University of Vienna Law School's ban on women students. So she was like, wait, no, come on, come on. I'm pro-women. I'm just, you know. Sounds like a herstory episode waiting to happen. (laughs) Miss Deutsch might have to stop by for some analysis. (laughs) Well, so move back two years before uh, The Psychology of Women was published. And in 1942... Deutsch pens an article that modern psychiatrist Michael Stone says laid the foundation for the contemporary psychoanalytic formulations of the borderline. Basically, she described a group of women patients who seemed normal, like on the outside, they seem normal, 
but lacked a depth and a warmth and had an inner emptiness. She called them as if personalities. Is this, a, is this an early reference to Clueless? I know. <laughs> that is the first thing I thought. Yeah, Cher Horowitz's uh, portrait was on the, the front page of, of this, this groundbreaking paper. And I like how she... Uh, and I like how she acknowledges that as if is not the most eloquent way to phrase it. But she essentially said, listen, let's just th- this is the best we can do for yeah. this. So what does as if mean? Well, she says that the reason she used this, quote, unoriginal label for this woman, specifically this woman, um, is that when you talk to her or look at her or interact with her, you get, quote, the inescapable impression that the individual's whole relationship to life has something about it which is lacking in genuineness and yet outwardly runs along as if it were complete. And she says anybody, not even a psychiatrist, would eventually look at this person having interacted with them for a while and and say, like, what's wrong with you? Where Where is the depth? And she says that this this question of where is your depth, where is the warmth, is that they have a, quote, highly plastic readiness to mold themselves to their surrounding environment. And that harkens back to what we said from the National Institutes of Health about not having that strong or stable sense of identity, about being constantly ready to mold yourself to your situation, which probably had a lot to do with living in an invalidating environment with parents who might not be sending you consistent messages. Caroline, all of which are themes of the movie Clueless. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. It all comes together. Um, but yeah, she she thought that the, this group of people was was pretty confusing, as did pretty much all psychiatrists at the time. And she posited that the as if personality might be a phase leading to schizophrenia. But she points out her patients do not belong among the commonly accepted forms of neurosis, and they're too well adjusted to really be called psychotic. So again, people still in the 40s are like, I don't know what to do with these people. And in the 50s, they're like, hey, the war is over, and this is a wastebasket term. No, really. That, that, that is exactly what was happening. And it's not until the 60s and 70s that borderline starts to become something more than just a colloquialism among psychoanalysts. It becomes clearer and clearer that the, the disorder is not related to schizophrenia, which seems like it's, that's a huge development in this. And psychiatrists start to recognize borderline patients' stable instability, as they call it, as well as abandonment fears, desperate need to attach to others as transitional objects, as well as unstable or distorted senses of self and others, and the reliance on splitting themselves um, between, like, good and bad qualities. Everything's either great or awful. It sounds like, I mean, the world and yourself are all in black and white terms. Yeah, it goes back to that commonly repeated, I think it's actually a book title about borderline personality disorder that's I hate you, don't leave me. Mm-hmm. It's you're either, everyone in your life is either like great and wonderful and a goddess and you're you're my best friend or just like I hate you, you're the scum of the earth, get away from me. And that that's basically what splitting is. Um, and in 1966, psychiatrist Richard Chesick notes that borderline patients are on the periphery of psychology and society. He's one of many um, researchers at the time who are basically like still putting their hands up like, I don't know. They're just sort of out there. 
But he also divides men and women along lines of BPD's manifestations that we still see today in research. And he says that the borderline or quote-unquote pan-neurotic group was mostly women, while the group struggling with addictions was mostly men. And everyone that he looked at had received treatment with, with few results. And so this is an observation that we will talk about more in terms of like common manifestations today, that it's still kind of divided along those lines with women getting diagnosed with the quote, you know, the more neurotic issues of anxiety and depression with men more often manifesting their BPD with substance abuse issues. And it's not until 1980 that it's first listed as a diagnosable illness in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. This is in the DSM-3. And it included the qualifier that it's overwhelmingly more common in women. Hello, gender. But is it really? Because as we've learned so many times on the podcast, uh, the even though the DSM is nicknamed the Mental Health Bible, there have been a number of times that it has been proven fallible. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we learn more about in the 1990s from psychiatrist Marsha in Lynham, who starts to develop some therapy around this. Yeah, she's another huge name in borderline personality research. Uh, she develops dialectical behavior therapy, which is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy to treat chronically suicidal BPD patients. And this therapy focuses on mindfulness, distress tolerance and emotional regulation. And we were reading um, a first person account of living with BPD over on Cracked. Um, And so not only was that really enlightening and very interesting to read, but the comments under it, some of the comments under it were heartbreaking. And I know we say, you know, never read the comments, but like these were actually very enlightening as well. A lot of people who've either lived with BPD or been related to or dated or married people with BPD really chimed in and had some great things to say. One commenter who describes him or herself as very, very lucky uh, says that they found a therapist who specialized in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, which they describe as the closest thing the psychiatric community has to a silver bullet for BPD. Um, they go on to describe it as having kind of a hand-holding approach to treatment that it says, hey guys, you've been poorly equipped in your mental toolbox to deal with certain things in life in terms of relationships, reactions, emotions. Everything is a little bit dialed up to high. And so you essentially take classes, so to speak, on working through those extreme reactions to things and learn how to interact with people in a healthy way. And so that commenter goes on to say, you know, like we have to take classes to learn how normal people act, but that's just how it is. And DBT is, like this commenter was saying, a huge deal for people with borderline personality disorder because just regular therapy or regular counseling doesn't really dive deep enough to sort of get to the root of those um, dysfunctional relationships that may have sparked the condition. And one thing, too, that jumped out to me in that comment was how um, DBT also teaches alternatives to destructive behaviors. And so the commenter wrote, quote, read, cut back on the cutting. Seriously, you aren't doing yourself any favor. So these kinds of things that on the outside we might be able to to identify as, oh, of course, that's self-destructive and unhealthy and harmful. Those are behaviors that have to be not only unlearned, but also 
probably replaced with healthier alternatives. So it's it's really fascinating to learn about um, that different kind of therapeutic approach that is starting to develop in the 90s and also happening in the 90s um, is that finally we have a recognition of the effects of childhood trauma and abuse, specifically sexual abuse and even more specifically among girls and women. Yeah, psychiatrist Judith Herman in a 1992 interview said that sexual abuse has been taboo, repressed for so long that it's now entering our consciousness in a very dialectical, polarized way. It has to. If it threatens establishment views, it should. Because therapists have really missed the boat in an important way, one that was predictable in a male-dominated profession with a female patient population. So for Herman... This whole thing is clearly more about external events triggering by borderline personality disorder than an issue of character and personality defaults. She is one of the doctors who thinks that it's a form of PTSD and or an adaptation to trauma. And she also has the interesting point that many of the symptoms associated with the diagnoses received by women who were victims of sexual abuse, including not only borderline, but also bipolar, among other things, were all once under the category of hysteria. And so her theory is that here are these women having normal reactions to abnormal situations in life and that we are living in a society that's hostile to victims. And so we're essentially pathologizing victimhood. But it should also be noted, too, that a lot of the I mean, because she's talking about this in 1992, some of the more contemporary studies we were reading underscored how um, child abuse or sexual abuse is not a necessary right. pr- you know qualifier for ber- borderline personality disorder. So, I mean, is she arguing that it doesn't she doesn't think it exists or in this subset of this popu- this abused population that maybe jumping to the conclusion of borderline is misguided? As I understand it, it's more along the lines of among women and girls who have been abused uh, the the rush to diagnose them with a mental health condition is perhaps rash, and instead we need to look at the culture that creates abusers and the culture that essentially is disgusted with victims mm-hmm. and blames victims. And so I think she goes on to talk about the early days of psychoanalysis and that nobody dealt with abuse of any kind, really, and it was all just like, what have you done? You know, why are you hysterical? What have you done to lead yourself into this situation? Not what has happened around you that might contribute to these symptoms. But moving away just from looking at girls and expanding our view to both men and women, we have to ask whether borderline personality disorder manifests itself differently in men versus women. Yeah, because uh, earlier we mentioned how that first DSM definition, um, you know, specified it to women. But, I mean, it, it turns out that, you know, it also affects a lot of men. It doesn't actually affect um, more women than men. But borderline personality disorder related impulses are different between men and women. And this is coming from uh, some research published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, as well as Innovations in Clinical Neuroscience, um, which highlighted how substance use disorders were more common among male patients, whereas eating disorders were more common among female patients. But it's not black and white. About half of those female patients 
had abused substances at some point. And about a fifth of the male patients had a history of serious eating disorders. And men were also likelier to have had an explosive temperament and more novelty-seeking behavior, which isn't terribly surprising when we think about testosterone in the brain and risk-taking behavior and all that. Yeah, and some of the comorbidities differ as well. Uh, women are more likely to have mood, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorders, whereas men are more likely to experience antisocial, sadistic, narcissistic, paranoid, and passive-aggressive personality disorders. And so, as one might expect, the treatment histories of men and women differ. Men are more likely to have had a history of treatment for substance abuse, whereas women's treatments have historically been characterized more often by psychotherapy and medication. And to, again, bust probably the biggest myth out there about borderline is that recent research has discounted any higher prevalence of it among women. And again, that's coming from innovations in clinical neuroscience. But why did we used to think that more women had it? Is it because of the whole hysteria kind of thing? Well, for a while, and and maybe even now to an extent, there were more women simply getting diagnosed with that. Um, as we see in a lot of mental health conditions, psychological conditions, where more women come forward and ask for help, whereas more men maybe are ending up in those substance abuse arenas. But according to that study that Kristen just mentioned, for a couple of decades now, investigators have found that some clinicians have a subtle gender bias when it comes to diagnosing BPD. So perhaps that psychiatrist or that psychologist or therapist is more likely, if you're a woman, exhibiting some of these behaviors to pinpoint BPD as opposed to either looking deeper, looking for something else, or perhaps they're just not as ready to diagnose it in men as they are in women. And there also seems to be a sampling bias, which makes total sense when you consider the traditional settings for prevalent studies, which makes sense when you consider how the traditional settings for prevalent studies used to assess, you know, how common something is among a population are psychiatric or mental health treatment facilities. So if women with BPD perform more self-harm behavior and wind up in mental health treatment facilities more often than men, then the studies will find a higher population of women. Meanwhile, you have more men suffering from substance abuse and antisocial features, which leads them often to treatment programs or jail. So you have guys being underreported in those mental health settings. Essentially, the dudes just weren't being counted for a while. And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, to, to make a general statement, I mean, I just think it's so sad that anybody would possibly receive the wrong diagnosis or not enough attention for the condition that they're suffering from simply because it's misunderstood or stigmatized or the, the way a person is acting based on what's going on in their brains and their bodies and their chemistry. It's, it's making them act a certain way. And so perhaps they're going to jail instead of getting proper mental health treatment that they need. But speaking of treatment, treatment does exist. People with BPD can get better. We already talked about dialectical behavior therapy, and and that is a big deal. Talk therapy, especially therapy that falls under that cognitive behavioral therapy umbrella, helps people identify and change the core beliefs and behaviors underlying their inaccurate perceptions about themselves 
and others. So in addition to DBT, there's also something called schema-focused therapy that helps people reframe the way they see themselves, overcoming those negative self-images that were instilled in childhood. And we mentioned earlier that there isn't any specific medication to target BPD alone, Um, but there are medications, obviously, to address symptoms like anxiety, aggression, or depression, but they might not be effective overall. But there was one interesting uh, dietary finding. Um, There was a study on 30 women with borderline personality disorder, which showed that omega-3 fatty acids may help reduce symptoms of aggression and depression. So... So fish oil supplements and lots of salmon? I'm just going to eat. Yeah, well, we should be eating fish all the time anyway for its health benefits in general. Except for sea bass. It's being overfished right now, friends. Is it really? Yeah. Ooh. Stay away from sea bass. I have sea bass in the freezer. No, now these omega-3 fatty acids, Caroline, though, did seem highly effective. The, the study found that it was as well tolerated as commonly prescribed mood stabilizers and not surprisingly, had few side effects. I mean, that's so fascinating. And I would love to hear from someone in the medical community who could potentially enlighten us a little bit more on that, because the, the there's a skeptical part of me that's just going like, is that some weird pseudoscience thing? But well, and it's 30 people. It's a small yeah, sample Very, size. very small sample size. So who knows what else could have been at work there. Um But, I mean, I think it just goes to show that if indeed that was accurate and this is something that could be extrapolated to, to more people... It's just so fascinating to think about those very delicate connections between nature and nurture and things that we're born with, things that we inherit from our parents, and then the way that those things can be set off and develop as we grow. Um, and I think it's so important to stress how much talk therapy, especially that intensive talk therapy, can help people really root out their sort of dysfunctional, damaging behaviors, damaging to themselves, but also their relationships. Yeah, and and we hope that this podcast primer has often offered you know a little bit of clarity on something that it seems like a lot of people misunderstand. I know that I had a, a lot of preconceived notions about it going into the research, which turned out to be just based on pure stereotype, really. Um, so we're so curious to hear from listeners on this who might deal with this in their lives and in any type of way. If you would like to share your experience, you can email us, momstuffathowstuffworks.com. Um, you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you. So I have a letter here from Katrina on our podcast a while back on women in construction. Um, and she writes, I apologize that I'm just now getting around to writing this email in response to your women in construction podcast, but I often listen to them weeks behind. And I also listen to two other podcasts from HowStuffWorks.com. And side note, Katrina, no need to apologize. It is, it's hard for me to keep up with my podcast queue. Um, so she goes on to say, I just wanted to say that I think you did a fabulous job really covering what women go through in a highly male-dominated field. I'm an entertainment rigger in Las Vegas, which is an extremely male-dominated field due to the nature of the work. I've only ever met four other ladies who rig, and only two of them are on the same level of capability, certification, or general knowledge as I am. I did want to say that I know of one thing that's been very difficult for me. 
Although I can personally say I have never experienced sexual harassment, my boyfriend has at my expense. See, my boyfriend and I met while working the same place, rigging, and went on to work in multiple venues for multiple companies together with the understanding between us that it was easier for me to be respected and garner respect for my physical capabilities by not letting our co-workers know we were a couple. At work, we were just two co-workers and were able to keep this up for over a year. The entire length of that year, however, my boyfriend often came home upset and telling me he had to put up with listening to our co-workers talk about trying to hit on me, sleep with me, my breast, etc., and he felt he couldn't say anything without jeopardizing the respect I'd worked so hard for and without hurting his own job for reacting. I always thanked him, made sure he knew how much I loved and appreciated the sacrifice from him, and when we moved, we were finally able to be in a work environment that allows us to be a couple publicly and let our work stand for itself individually. That being said, as women are so often the targets of such behavior and sexual harassment and how it affects a woman is so typically the topic discussed, I just wonder how many other loving boyfriends and husbands are out there suffering at the expense of trying not to hurt the respect and career paths of the women they love who may be in the same line of work. And I will say that with that, like kudos to your boyfriend for for dealing with that. Absolutely. But I think I think that uh, guys, whether they are romantically in relationships with women on the job or not, have it like so much power, arguably even more power than women on those job sites to say, hey, that's nonsense. Let's shut it down. Because as we all know, guys can and do lead by example as well. So curious to hear from fellas about that, because I'm sure that there can be risks associated with being the one calling out that kind of inappropriate behavior, too. So let us know your thoughts. But thanks so much, Katrina, for writing in and uh, and rigging, which sounds uh, like quite a job. Well, I have a letter here from Ariel who says, I absolutely love the podcast, though I don't get to listen as often as I'd like. As such, I am currently catching up on past episodes and just finished enjoying your interview with Nina McLaughlin, which made me think about my self-image as something of a handy woman. Though my husband and I do fall into stereotypical gender roles in that he is the breadwinner and I am the main caregiver, we also have something of a role reversal in that he is the main man in the kitchen while I do most of the household repair work. As a fiercely independent person, I've never been one to wait on another, whether it be male or female person, to do something for me, and so have enjoyed learning how to take on handy-type projects myself. I even have my own toolbox set apart from the general toolbox that houses the basic hammers and screwdrivers, and if threatened the men in my house with broken fingers, should I ever go looking for one of my tools and find it missing? I love my husband dearly, but the man has lost the power cord for drill, the drill bits, and more than a few other odd tools over the years. As a young driver, my father taught me basic car maintenance, and I often helped with minor repairs when he would work on my car. Now, I am usually the first to notice something amiss in our vehicles, and with the Haynes Manual, a.k.a. Mechanic's Bible, as my dad called it, can often troubleshoot the problem even before I call the auto shop. My mechanic loves the fact that he can talk to me about my vehicle in technical terms and doesn't have to sugarcoat the problem. I love hearing from women who live and work in a man's world while retaining their sense of femininity, bucking against perceived gender norms, while still proudly holding true to the ones they hold dear. Thanks for another amazing podcast. 
And thanks to you, Ariel. I read this email and was immediately like, I have to do some learning. Like, I need to learn how to do things that are technical and mechanical. And I don't know anything about my car. And here, my boyfriend changes his oil, Ariel, and he can, like, fix his brake pads. I don't even know. Where are your brake pads? You know what, Caroline? I bet he'll teach you. He's offered. (laughs) <laughs> so you just have to say yes. Just say yes to the dress. Wait, no, that's no, different. that's different. Yeah, say yes to the brake pads, Caroline. Say yes to the brake pads and the oil change, and I will just have to I'll wear raggedy clothes when I do it because he always gets so dirty. But he wears his wears his nice jeans. Get some coveralls. I know, I know. You know, I'll get some fancy coveralls. So basically, Ariel, what I'm trying to tell you is that you're an inspiration, and I appreciate your letter. And we appreciate all of your letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our links to our sources, you know where to go. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 